It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. joining us today we are joined by someone uh, that i think is a very interesting uh, writer and thinker and communicator i first came into contact with him when i was in congress Um, he was then i believe i think i'll have this right the head of the ethics and religious liberty commission for the southern baptist convention some things have changed in dr russell moore's life some things have not So let's find out what and why from one of the more prominent theologians and Christian thinkers in the United States, um, and that is Dr. Russell Moore, who is also the author of a brand new book, Losing Our Religion, not to be confused with the old song, uh, Losing My Religion from R.E.M., for those that are as old as I am. Uh, That was, I think, in the 80s or 90s, Losing Our Religion, which we're going to get into because the the data actually supports exactly what he is saying. So with that, welcome, Dr. Moore. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. I, I I like smart people who are analytical and critical thinkers. Even if I may wind up with a different conclusion, that to me is not the worst thing in the world. The worst right. thing in the world is somebody can't tell me why they believe what they believe. Right. That's it for right. me. So I want to start. With a young Russell Moore, a grandmother who was a Roman Catholic, father who may have been a Baptist preacher or somebody in your family was a Baptist preacher, if I remember correctly. My grandfather, yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So how tell us about a young Russell Moore growing up in Biloxi, Mississippi. Well, I, I grew up in a really good, uh, close-knit church community, Southern Baptist Church, um, all of my life, and then went through a kind of spiritual crisis about the age of 15. Um, that I've seen a lot of people go through where where you look around and you say, is this really real or is this just kind of what it what it takes to be a good person in the South uh, or to be a good American or to or to whatever? Um, and so I went through a, a prolonged kind of spiritual crisis. And actually, it was my parents having read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to me as a kid so many times that brought me out of that because I could recognize the name C.S. Lewis on the spine of uh, mere Christianity. And that really helped me uh, think all of this through. And that, that sort of has changed the trajectory of my life because I always think about who are the people who are going through that right now. Because a lot of times you don't know people, nobody would have known that I was going through a spiritual crisis. I was still in church and Sunday school and uh, a good kid, but it was all going on inside. Yeah, doubt. I could have a whole separate conversation with you about doubt and how much faith it requires uh, to have doubt. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think might have been the eighth chapter of that book is is. It's the chapter on the great sin, which mm. which um, he says is pride. I think he's yeah. right. But boy, 
you look at our culture today, they want to they, they want to give you a list of which sins are really bad and which ones are not, and and it doesn't like always to me reflect <laughs> the yeah. teachings of the Bible. But yeah, but we'll get into that in a second. I, I want to ask you. I'm gonna start right here, and this is not me being dumb. I really do not understand so-called Christian nationalism. I I do not. If you look at the teachings of Christ, you cannot run a country based on it. Right. So so what what is the what is this? Is it a recent fascination? What is this renewed fascination with what they call Christian nationalism? Well, I think there's always going to be a tendency for people to try to use religion uh, for some kind of power. I mean, that goes all the way back to Pharaoh, uh, to Caesar. I mean, in almost every culture, because if you can do that, whether it's running a church or running a country, what you can do is to say you can't question uh, what we're doing, because if you question that, you're actually questioning God. And so that's an old temptation, uh, third temptation of Christ, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of, of the world and their glory. Um, but I think we've seen a renewed uh, sense of it in the past several years of a lot of people who are defining Christianity, not the way that the scripture does as somebody who is forgiven of sins and come in, come in, coming into a relationship with Christ, but instead as some sort of external social conformity. Um, and so you see that a lot. You see it a lot in Europe, uh, for instance, and it probably this was where the first warning signs of it would be. You would go and see some of these groups that were Christian nationalist groups, but a lot of them would be atheists. And, and they were the leaders and they would say, well, what we mean by Christian is French or German or Dutch uh, as opposed to somebody else. So it was it was about who we are, who our racial identity is or who our ethnic identity is, rather than what uh, Christianity actually is. It transcends all that stuff. Well, that makes a lot more sense because I'm sitting here and I got to I got to be honest with you, Dr. Moore. Sometimes I get verses in the Bible confused with lyrics from U2 songs. I am not a <laughs> theologian. I, my, my wife and, and others are really, really good on that. But I'm sitting here thinking I'm almost sure someone was told to go give everything you have to the poor. I don't know that that would work as a tax strategy in the United States. I'm almost certain that that he said something about 70 times seven and praying for your enemies and forgiving those who persecute you. And that wouldn't work as a military strategy. So how does Christianity work as a governing strategy? Well, with Christian nationalism, what they're usually doing is uh, is ignoring all of that uh, anyway. Uh, they're, they're not focusing on the actual teachings of Jesus. Uh, it's about whatever sort of uh, political or, or nationalistic agenda they want to pursue, and they just add the authority of Jesus to it. I, I think that where... Uh, where the teachings of Jesus come into uh, being citizens and being part of a, a country is the shaping of people's consciences. Um, and so Jesus, of course, isn't giving a tax policy. He, he doesn't he doesn't do that with uh, he had many encounters with Roman soldiers and uh, Roman tax collectors. He didn't give a tax policy. He didn't give a um, he didn't give a, a, a foreign policy. But what what John the Baptist did say to those soldiers and tax collectors is don't defraud anybody. 
Uh, don't uh, don't use your power to harm people. So it shapes people's consciences in such a way that they start to see what's important and what's not important and and uh, who matters. That changes, I think, the way that we serve uh, together. I'm going to say something, and this is me saying it and not you. It will be wildly unpopular, but that does not mean it's not true. The I do for sure see what the Republican Party has gotten from its relationship with the evangelical right. I do for sure. I do not see what the cause of Christ has gotten from that relationship. I, I think the influence of the church has gone down dramatically in my lifetime. Uh, I think the polling indicates that uh, church attendance. So when I go to church, I I ask people, are you a believer who participates in the political process or are you a Republican or Democrat who happens to attend church? What is your identity? Where do you see this going? Because it looks like the church is diminishing in, in our culture to me. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And it's one of those things we saw at first on the far left, uh, where we would have uh, churches and denominations that would, um, you know, the, the Sermon on the Resurrection is about recycling. Uh, and, and ultimately, what people decide is, OK, well, if that's what the point is. I can do that without uh, giving up a Sunday morning. And now we're seeing that on the other side of the spectrum as well, where people are starting to wonder, well, is this is this the point? Is it really just about mobilizing me or marketing to me or or something else? And if that's the case, you can do all of that without uh, take up your cross and follow me. And so that's what really leads to the crisis. And if you look at if you look at some of the concerns that I mean, we have right now, we're at the first a point in our history where we don't have a majority of people who are church attenders, uh, church members in this country. Then you talk to people why Uh, some of it has to do with politicization. Uh, Some of it has to do with the endless scandals. Um, But it all comes down to the same thing, which is, is this real Uh, or, or is it just one more way? to sell me something. And that's really, I mean, you look around and you see almost every institution in American life uh, right now has a crisis of credibility. I mean, all kinds of institutions that we took for granted, everybody was going to respect the Boy Scouts. Everybody was going to respect, uh, you know, all of these institutions, they're all in a place of, of crisis at a time when people are lonely and disconnected and fragmenting apart. And the church just cannot afford to be just another institution doing all of those games. More of this interview with Dr. Russell Moore is coming up. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. All right. You mentioned um, some possible reasons, church attendance. Uh, I I think back, I guess the last two times I really paid attention that the Southern Baptist Convention uh, made the news. Um, it was recently. Um, and of all the things that plague our culture, I can't imagine that having women preach uh, would be in the top two trillion Um but they made the news for that. And then there's a sex scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, I say sex scandal. Uh, there are ministers who have been accused of impropriety. And, and for a while, 
way before I ever got to Congress, Doc, I mean, there, there, there are churches that view this as a spiritual matter, not a criminal matter. You know, we're going to bring you in for counseling, domestic violence. We're going to bring you in for counseling, uh, you know, incest. We're going to bring you in for counseling. To me, those are crimes. Yeah. And, and, and you don't like handle those in-house and you don't handle sexual impropriety by not warning other churches right. that this person's been. So, I mean, part of me is sitting there thinking, of course, you're in trouble. You deserve to be in trouble. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And it's it's one of these things when you look at the um, when you look at the sexual abuse uh, crisis. I saw it in Southern Baptist Convention. It happens in in other places. One of the motivating factors that people have is to say we need to protect the institution by not uh, bringing this stuff to light. And so if you if you talk about it, then that means that people aren't going to trust the institution and walk away from. It. So people have all kinds of ways to to calm their conscience down and say, oh, well, this is this is for the sake of sending missionaries out and so forth. This is not the way Jesus operates. Uh, he, he doesn't need things covered in darkness for his PR. And it also uh, is what what erodes trust in those institutions. So when you have a church, for instance, that has a um, a sexual abuse case and they do the right thing, they uh, notify the authorities, they they uh, are transparent with the community around them. That doesn't destroy trust in that uh, in that church, in the community. It actually builds it because people can know. I know that these are people who are actually going to deal with problems when they come up. When that doesn't happen, uh, you end up with the kind of crisis that we have right now. And uh, and so you have um, you have a lot of people who are watching some of the nonsense and walking away. What I worry about is that there are a lot of people who are walking the, who are watching the nonsense and are walking away um, because they start to confuse this with Jesus himself. And, you know, when I first started in ministry, if somebody came up to me and said, I'm, I'm thinking about leaving uh, the faith. It was almost always because somebody would say, I can't believe this aspect of the supernatural or this passage of the Bible, or because they would say, I think the church is too strict on me uh, morally. I almost never hear that now. Uh, instead, what I hear are from people who are saying, it's not that I don't believe what the church teaches. It's that I don't believe the church believes what the church teaches. That's an entirely different problem. And if we don't address that very quickly, uh, we're going to have we're going to have even deeper problems. Well, to their point and in their defense, um, typically when we see uh, ministers and I'm not picking on Southern Baptists, I mean, my wife and I attend the Southern Baptist Church. I don't know what I am, but um, but that's the church we attend. I'm not picking on them. But when we see them on television, they're much more interested in talking about the next election cycle than they are eternity. Yeah. So if I am a, a, a skeptic or or I'm not sure, I'm sitting there thinking, God, eternity is a long time. Is that is that really is that really real? That would be like pretty fascinating thing to talk about, as opposed to who is going to take control of the House of Representatives. It almost makes me think, well, I, God's not in control. We got to have Kevin McCarthy in control. So I get why they're kind of wondering what is most important to you. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's especially true when you look around in American life right now, where we have we have secularized to the point that politics is ultimate. 
no matter what uh, no matter what the politics, uh, the political affiliation might be, it starts to become at the core of my identity, which means you don't really even have politics anymore. Um, instead, what you have are these uh, these bands of people who are saying my team is completely right and your team is completely evil. And when I tell you who I am politically, I'm telling you who I am at the core. And that's just not, as you well know, that's not how uh, the American political system is meant to work. It, it puts too much weight on politics. And then when you don't have uh, anybody talking to the really transcendent concerns uh, that are below the surface of what does life mean? Uh, what does death mean? Uh, what What's really and ultimately important? You end up with a cynical and a burned over people. Well, that's pretty much where I am. So we'll, we'll start right there with with when I survey my life, the people who have been the most authentic uh, representatives of Christ, the, the um. I don't want to say the best Christians because the best Christians would reject that title. The right. ones that are the most authentic to me, almost to the person, are women. Mm -hmm. Almost. And so then I go back to vacation Bible school and I say, well, okay, well, God revealed you know, Jesus' divinity to women. Uh, they were the first to sign up for his ministry. They were the last to leave him at the cross. I, I, I do think there's a verse, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I don't remember him ever asking his mother why she forsake him. He revealed his resurrection. It was revealed to women first. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I am lost when I look at that and I look at my own life and the role that women have played. Does the Southern Baptist Convention really want to make the news for saying that, that we're going to kick people out for having women pastors? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's legitimate for them to say, uh, look, this is what we think the Bible teaches about some of the differences in calling in men and women. That's perfectly legitimate. Every uh, every group has the, the right to do that. The problem is when you come in with a non-existent problem, um, there, there are not uh, women trying to do unbiblical things in, in churches across the, the, the Southern Baptist Convention or, or in a lot of other places. Uh, that's not where your problem is. As a matter of fact, your problem is in the opposite. It's that you haven't had women at the table uh, when some of these awful things have gone on. Um, I mean, I remember one time I was sitting with a group of uh, women, Southern Baptist women, and none of them wanted to be pastors at all. But and they were from very young to to very old. And one of them said, you know, I think when some of these sexual abuse uh, uh, revelations came out that some of you men leaders are kind of rattled and shocked by that. And we just want you to know, not one of us in here is shocked. And every woman in the room nodded her head up and down. Well, if you had had those women at the table uh, all along, a great deal of that stuff uh, could have been uh, could have been dealt with at its very beginning. And and you know, as you say, you look around every congregation, uh, a congregation that doesn't have women active, serving, leading in various ways is a congregation that doesn't exist. I started to say that's not functional. I don't even think you can find it uh, no matter what they they have in their doctoral statement. So, yeah, it's it, it's one of those times where you have um, people wanting to sort of find a semblance of life by arguing, but arguing about the things that matter the least 
in their context while ignoring the things that really matter the most and, and would take a lot of sacrifice to address. All right. You could have written a book about anything you wanted to. You're a skilled researcher. You're a theologian. What what led you to believe that we are indeed losing our religion? Clearly, I agree with you as anyone who's listened for more than 10 seconds. But but what led you? I mean, are, are we at like a crisis point? Is this like a normal arc of history running its course? Where are we? I think we're at a crisis point, but I don't see that as a as a bad thing. Um, I, I think that the crisis can shake us and can create uh, some some new things. And that's why I'm ultimately very hopeful about this. I use the language of losing. You, you, you referenced REM, uh, losing my religion. You know, I always assumed that that old song was about somebody losing the faith uh, and actually found out in, in interviews that that's actually not about that. It's about the old uh, the old Southern expression, as, as you would know, lose my religion. I'm about to I'm about to lose my religion if I if I have to stand in this line at the DMV uh, any longer. And it's really about uh, anger. And what I'm convinced of is that those in our context aren't really two different things, is that you have a lot of people who have some justified anger at a lot of nonsense and criminality and and triviality that they've seen going on in the church. And that that contributes to uh, the loss of religion. And that's why uh, we need to have people who are willing to say we're going to recover genuine, authentic uh, gospel uh, Christianity. And I really do think that that we're at one of those moments where there are so many people who are looking around and they're feeling bewildered. They feel like they're the crazy ones. Uh, but I think that's actually a good thing because those people are starting to recognize, OK, we can't just keep doing what we're doing. And those people are starting to find each other. And I, I see as somebody who's a, a Christian who believes in uh, revival and, and I, I see that in the in the process of history, the way that always happens is with a tearing down uh, before there's a building up. The old order uh, collapses before something new starts. I mean, whether you're talking about Book of Acts or if you're talking about, uh, say, uh, Billy Graham, uh, it, you had somebody who was coming in doing something very different, old, old gospel, old message but a very, very different way of moving forward that didn't just accept the old paradigm. And I think that's where we are right now. All right. I want you to imagine that we have a, a listener somewhere and they are they are they want to ask you this. They want to say, OK, Doc, I want my Christian beliefs to be first and foremost in my life. That is what I want my identity to be. I want these teachings are hard. I mean, I think it was. Uh, what G.K. Chesterton said, it's not that Christianity is, you know, doesn't work. It's that it's really hard and therefore rarely tried. I want to try it. But I also, you know, I'm inundated with politics and whether it's, you know, the curriculum at the school or whether it's it's transgender issues or abortion. How do I how do I follow the teachings of Christ, but also participate in the political process and keep it in proper perspective? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of that has to do with asking uh, what that person's particularly uh, particular vulnerabilities are. So, for instance, 
Um, I think that we need uh, people in bars and nightclubs uh, sharing the gospel and, and caring for people. I don't think we need recovering alcoholics in bars and nightclubs uh, doing that. And so uh, a lot of times when it comes to people who say, I think maybe God's calling me into politics or into some sort of political engagement, that works best with people who are able to hold it really lightly. And that means people who are able to say, you know, I can lose an election, whether it's me on the ballot or, or my person on the ballot. I can lose an election and that's not an existential threat to me. Uh, those are the people who are actually able to, to serve most effectively. So you might have somebody um, I mean, go back to C.S. Lewis. He, he said uh, the devil doesn't send errors into the world one by one, but two by two on either side of the truth. So you might have one person who is um, not really carrying out their responsibilities as a citizen. They're not really caring about the people around them. They need to be prodded to be more engaged. And then you may have somebody else who is in this moment of idolatry of those things and making politics ultimate, who needs to say, wait, that's not good for me. I need to be the person who hangs back more. And so a, a lot of that really has to do with the condition of the individual person's soul and heart. Ola, before I get to my own theological questions, I want to ask you one kind of nuts and bolts question. I don't know that people who um, are not affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention care about this, and I don't know that people who are affiliated with the convention know about it. I'm not even sure I know the answer. But but when we hear convention, we think um, you know, uniformity, um, you know, ties with it. What is the struggle? And, and I know that you are not with the convention, but you but you know a lot about it. What so so I mean. Is it just this loose affiliation of churches? Do they share information? I know there's like what a co-op program where they all donate to the same. But what is the Southern Baptist Convention? It's a bottom up structure. So if you think about, for instance, the Catholic Church, it's the opposite of that. Um, the Catholic Church, you have bishops and, and they make the decisions and that filters down to the local parishes. Um, in the Southern Baptist Convention and a lot of other, uh, a lot of Pentecostal denominations operate this way too, that the local congregation is autonomous, makes its own decisions about everything, but they pool their money together uh, in a common mission. So the support missionaries and support training uh, seminary students and and so forth. And I mean, those, those things come with, um, those things come with cost and benefit. I mean, when when all of the sexual abuse revelations started coming out about the Catholic Church, there were a lot of people in my wing of Christianity that were saying, see, that's what happens when you have a top down uh, bureaucracy and bishops can can cover things up. Then when the revelations came out about the SBC, a lot of my Catholic friends were saying, see, that's what happens when you don't have bishops and you don't have any uh, accountability. In reality, any system can be exploited uh, for evil purposes if you don't have accountability. You know, uh, earlier you you made reference to this notion that that yeah, you know, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but but there's a bigger issue. I, you know, we have to win because of this, which I consider to be just rank relativism. The end justifies the means, and and you must have a pretty small God if you don't think He can you know, figure it out at the end. What is, 
what is the right way? I mean, there are people who really think like like the next election is going to decide the fate of Western civilization. And lay aside, that's what they thought, you know, both times President Obama was on the, I mean, they probably thought that, Democrats thought that when Ronald Reagan was elected. So what is the right way to say, okay, this is important, but I mean, if you are a believer, there is someone who in charge who's actually not going to be surprised by the election results. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with people. I mean, we, we have widespread biblical illiteracy. And I'm not talking about in the culture. I'm talking about in the church of people who don't spend time uh, in the actual word of God to encounter the way that Jesus is, who is not panicked and fearful and hand wringing. Um, and a lot of times this sort of frantic uh, anger and fear that comes out of the church, it's rooted in a lack of confidence. Um, th that's when you become uh, you become so um loud and exaggerated is when you really don't trust uh, your own gospel. And instead, if, you, if we really do believe, okay, the kingdom of God is ultimate, that means there are a lot of important things, uh, but there are not things that are going to challenge that. That ought to give us the, the ability to um, operate with, with more uh, calm gospel calmness. And it also ought to enable us to see, okay, people who disagree with us are not our enemies. We we wrestle against flesh and blood, not uh, we wrestle against uh, principalities, powers, not against flesh and blood, which means that somebody can completely disagree with me and that's not a threat to me. And it also means that that person, I can see that person as being more than just that person's set of political opinions or religious opinions or or whatever it is. And if we actually get, I mean, we're at a point right now where we don't even believe we can persuade each other. It's not about persuading each other. It's it's just, it's not even about talking to each other. It's about talking about each other so that our respective tribes can say, oh, see, you're proving you're really one of us. That's not a healthy way to carry out a society. No, I tell folks it is pure ratification and validation. You go find a group that already agrees with you. You, you need a pollster, but that's about it. Uh, tell them what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. You'll have a long career in politics. If you want to find out if you're any good, stand in front of 12 strangers and see if you can persuade them beyond yeah. a reasonable doubt. If you will see if you're any good. But we don't even try to persuade anymore. I mean, literally, it is all about turnout. Go find your people. Don't try to persuade people who are persuadable. Go find your people and turn them out. And yeah, man, I'm, I'm glad I don't do that for a living anymore. All right, I have constructed my own, what I think is an upper level theology class. You're a theologian. So I want to ask you a couple of questions that have vexed me. Maybe other people will find them interesting too. All right. After Jesus died on the cross and before he was resurrected, I think the Bible says some translations say he went to prison. I think the Apostles Creed says he went to hell. Mm -hmm. Did he preach a sermon? Who did he preach a sermon to? And if he did it once, can he do it again? I mean, at the end, can he say, hey, look, I'm going to I'm going to look, you're not going to have to go listen to a preacher. You're going to get to hear me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think that descended into hell refers to the the place of the dead. He 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 died. Um and I think that the preaching to the spirits in prison that the apostle Peter's talking about is the announcement that comes with the resurrection. 
that the the victory has been won. So I don't think it's so much about he physically went to a location and preached as much as that's what the that's what the the atonement and the resurrection proclaims. So of course, I mean, Jesus can go anywhere he wants and preach whatever he wants. And that's and that's fine by me. But I think that's what that means. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. This one has vexed me since I was at what used to be a Baylor, a Baptist school, Baylor. Peter and Judas, I mean, I, you lay them side by side. Peter, what, denied him three times, you know, got it wrong on the Mount of Transfiguration, tried to, I mean, what, he cut off or tried to cut off a Roman soldier's ear. So one he builds his church on, the other, this is what I don't get. Doc, I mean, the Roman soldiers knew who Jesus was. It's not like they needed Judas to point him out. It, it, they knew who he was. So, yeah. okay, it's devastating to be betrayed. He returns the money. He says he spilled innocent blood. And then he kills himself. So why is one so reviled and the other like the rock upon which the church was built? Well, I think that's, I think that's one of the most... Um fascinating and glorious things uh, about the gospel is it's not about the performance of uh, of the person um it's instead about jesus and in the the difference between the only difference between judas and and peter is repentance uh it, it's not that peter's a better person because as you say you put them side by side uh in some cases you, you might say peter's even even worse but he's the one who comes back and says uh, Lord, where else am I going to go? I I'm coming to you. Uh, Judas doesn't. Instead, what Judas responds with is he has sorrow for the fact that he is in the situation, but he doesn't have um, he doesn't seek mercy. He, he doesn't uh, he doesn't seek repentance. And and that's the case. I mean, you know, there are some people who think, well, what it means is we need to be really, really good, and all of our good deeds are going to out, outweigh our bad deeds. And if that's the case, then God's uh, pleased with us. That's not what the Bible teaches. Je Jesus knows that you're uh, a sinner, and he's, he's not expecting you to pretend that you're not. What he's expecting you to do is to confess your sin and to say, I need you. And that's the difference between those two. All right. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. So he knows when he gets 12 draft choices, he knows one of the 12 is going to betray. He picks him anyway. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess uh, I don't want to get so deep where my wife says, I can't believe you asked that nice man that question. <laughs> I mean, it's almost as if Judas was predestined to do what he was going to do. He didn't have a choice. I mean, it was it was prophesied, I think, that he would be betrayed. So did he have a choice? Yeah, I think he did. I think he did have a choice. But I mean, that's one of the great mysteries um, of of all of human existence is how do you have a God who's sovereign and and in control of where history is going? And you have people who are freely making their own uh, decisions. So it's not that Judas is saying, well, I can't help but go and betray uh, Jesus because there's something forcing me to do it. He's making those decisions, but that fits within the providence of God. And that that is a mystery. And it is, you know, it's it's taken uh, 5000 years of people trying to 
to map out exactly how that mystery fits together. God never tells us. I, I am almost positive Martin Luther did not say this. Uh, neither did Gandhi, although this quote is attributed to both of them. I have no idea who said it. You may know. You probably do know because you got a bunch of unearned doctorates. But someone is alleged to have said, I would rather be ruled by a smart Turk than a dumb Christian. Yeah. Luther. Yeah. Okay. So I think I know what he meant by that, which is, you know, give me competence. Give me give me, you know, critical reasoning. Don't just, you know, what's that? What's that? fish symbol that people put on their businesses to say, hey, yeah. hey, come here, I guess you yeah. know, you're more likely to go heaven if you come get your car repaired here, although you may pay a whole lot more for it. How do we balance people who profess faith versus don't profess faith with the competence, particularly in government? Well, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, what, what Luther and others who've made this point are trying to to say is that just because a person is forgiven of sin and has a relationship with Christ doesn't mean that that person is an expert in everything. Um, And and he's also trying to point out that uh, leaders in government, leaders in business, leaders, people can do things competently uh, and with character, even if they, even if they don't know Christ. And so, I mean, I'm, if I'm hiring somebody to come and deal with a plumbing situation in my house. The first question I'm going to ask is not going to be, well, are you also uh, a Christian? It's going to be, do you know how to fix this problem? Now, I'm also not going to have somebody who has a record of uh, extorting money from people uh, with uh, with his uh, plumbing business or, or something like that. So character is important, but uh, but not just identity politics as to who's who's uh, in the tribe and who's not. One thing um, I used to hear a lot, and then I kind of quit listening uh, for it, kind of tune it out. Uh, it's, it's it's obvious God can use anyone he wants. I think he actually had a conversation with Satan about Job, I think. Mm-hmm. So this notion, well, the Bible is littered with instances where God has used flawed people. So we should, it's almost as if we should overlook the flaws because, well, God can use anybody. So, so who am I to judge? I, I don't, I don't have to like weigh and balance character or any of that. I mean, God can use, he used a talking donkey. So how do you like wrestle with, yeah, he can, uh, but that, that doesn't mean that that should be like what you accept. Yeah. Well, it's really similar to, I mean, the uh, the Apostle Paul talked about this, that you would have people who would say, well, because God forgives sin and because God's uh, God's grace is amplified when he forgives sin, that means that I need to forgive. I need to sin all the more so that God can have more to forgive and uh, and get more glory. And Paul says that's nonsense. Uh, you, you can't do evil that good may come. And so we recognize everybody's a sinner. So anybody who's looking for somebody who's perfect is, um, is is looking for somebody that doesn't exist. But we do know that God expects uh, people who are trustworthy and people who are of character. So there's a big difference. And I think all of us know this. If you're if you're going to hire somebody to work for you um, and and what you have is a background of somebody who's been 
committing arson in his uh, last place of work or or who's been stealing from the the books in her last uh, place of employment. That's a very different thing than than saying, well, you know, everybody's flawed. So you might as well have the arsonist. No, no. You say, no, I'm not going to hire the arsonist. I'm going to hire somebody who's who's flawed, but who has those basic um, categories of character. All right, I'm going to let you go with two more questions. This notion, I think, and again, I'm going back to vacation Bible school, there's really one unforgivable sin, and that is the rejection of the Holy Spirit, which I'm not even 100% sure what that means, but that that's what the Bible says. But for those who say, oh, no, I've got the list, uh, these are okay, this is you know right at the top, homosexuality, right at the top, uh, adultery, that's okay. Uh, wasn't it Jesus that said, if you've thought it, it's the same as doing it? Um, nah, he didn't really mean that. Uh, I, I mean, what do you do with these people who really think they have a list of the sins that matter and the ones that don't? Well, usually, uh, usually the way that works is somebody will say the sins that really uh, matter and are serious are the ones that I'm not tempted to commit. And the ones that are okay, uh, and that God just sort of looks over are the ones I want to do. I mean, that's almost always uh, what it is, rather than saying, okay, look, uh, sin is is serious. All of us have uh, temptations towards sin. We need to take that very seriously. And God can forgive any sin. And, and somebody who's in Christ, there is no condemnation. So it's it's I mean, I think there are a lot of people who think even people who who come to repentance will sometimes think, well, God's mad at me. Uh, God's keeping a list of uh, of everything that I've done wrong and, and sort of holding that in the back of his mind. That is not what the gospel says. Uh, it, it is gone. You, you are joined to Christ and God sees you exactly as he sees Jesus. And so that gives that gives a level of freedom to then not to pretend like I don't have sin um, and I can come to God and say, I messed up. I, I, I need to come back to my, my father and to do that repeatedly. All right. I said, I had one more, but I really have two more. Uh, I'll just have to ask my wife to forgive me for asking this <laughs> question. She's so sick of hearing it, but I like to ask smart people because I don't know the answer in the beginning was God. So everything else came after him including the creation of the angels, I guess a third of whom fell. Yeah. What I don't get is if, I mean, so Lucifer had the choice between good and evil or pride and humility, whatever choice you want to lay out. Where did the option come from? If nothing existed except God, then how did he even have the choice between whether to see himself as uh, or pride, the, the choice of pride had to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I guess what is the origin of evil is what I'm is what I'm wondering if in the beginning was just God. Yeah, well, you're taking the Judas question and and uh, pushing it back uh, in in time. But it's the same. It's the same ultimate uh, question. And it's, it's why the Bible speaks of it as the mystery of iniquity. Uh, there's there's just not a lot that we know. I mean, a, a great uh, theologian, Augustine, um, said that it's that sin in the in this case, it's not uh, something. It's a lack of 
something. So there's a, a nothingness and a lack of grace. And that's that's one way to to think about it. But ultimately, we don't know. I mean, you mentioned Job. Job uh, asked God a lot of questions and God just said, um, that's not you don't need to know that. Uh, and I would, I would rather, sometimes I would rather, no, I want to, I want to know all of this. Uh, and God just hasn't told us. You know, Job, get, Job gets a little bit of attention, deservedly so. He went through quite a book, a, a bit. There's another book, Habakkuk, that I like yeah. to read because that guy has some questions too. And, you yeah. know, God put up with him for a little while. And then he, I think he finally said, look, remind me again who you are. I mean, where were you when I did all these <laughs> things? But what that tells me is it's okay to ask those. Yeah. God doesn't get his feelings hurt when you say, why are you doing this? Right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, almost every book of the Bible, uh, you have God giving us pictures of people who are asking that question. Why? Uh, what, you know, why, why, why me? Why is this? Uh, why is this happening? I don't understand it. And I mean, ultimately, it comes to the point where uh, like with Peter, which you mentioned earlier, Jesus said to him one time uh, when everybody was freaked out and leaving, and Jesus said, do you want to leave too? And Peter said, kind of, but where else am I going to go? That's the right answer. And I think that's where God wants to get us. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go with this. I, I have become uh, unfortunately cynical, um, skeptical. Part of it's being a lawyer. Part of it's just like observing human nature, you said you were hopeful, mm-hmm. uh, which surprised me. I mean, you, you, you even in the in the face of writing a book about losing our religion and and all of the things that plague the church and the country, you remain hopeful. So I'm going to let you close us out by saying why you are right. <laughs> well, I think that cynicism is the most dangerous thing that we can face right now. And I'm I'm pulled toward it, too. And that's that's why I that's why I wrote this book. But I think that Jesus, when he said upon this rock, as you mentioned, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail uh, against it. I believe that was really true. And if 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 Jesus really was raised from the dead, which I believe is a is a historical truth then that means he knows what he's talking about and he's not panicked. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to bring, uh, I'm going to bring my kingdom about. And that means that, you know, one of the things that being an evangelical Christian believing in the new birth, God has just over and over again uh, brought people out of nowhere uh, to build up uh, the church. Uh, Augustine was a pagan hedonist and C.S. Lewis was an atheist uh, professor. Chuck Colson was a a political hatchet man, said he would run over his grandmother for Richard Nixon. I mean, all of these figures, uh, they seem to come out of nowhere and God uses them to build his church. Um, And I'm confident that's going to continue to happen. I know you uh, are an editor at large, I believe. Uh, I assume you're on social media podcasts. You have a brand new book out where if people say, you know what, I appreciate his authenticity. Uh, he's a thoughtful guy. I'd, I'd like to follow him. Where can people follow you? Well, they listen to the podcast. The Russell Moore show comes out every uh, Wednesday, uh, or they can follow me on social media at DR Moore on Twitter or at Russell Moore on threads, which I'm, I'm just now part of and, and actually really enjoying. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, you're making me like think for a second. Threads is the alternative to Twitter, right? Neither of yeah. which I'm on. But so the fact that I know that, yeah, I, I, I can tell you, I can tell you who the four-string quarterback for the University of South Carolina Gamecocks uh, is going to be this fall. But I cannot tell you about social media, Russell. I just. <laughs> Uh, uh, are are you doing any preaching or any teaching or? Yeah, I, I I preach all over the place and 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 teach a lot at my local church here, Emmanuel Nashville in Nashville. All right, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. I am sorry to bombard you with everything. Oh no, it's politics fine. to you know why why Judas Iscariot is so reviled. I mean, I know why he is, but I've I've hit you with a lot, but uh but you're a smart guy. So thank you and I look forward to catching up with you again soon and good luck with your book. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. All right. Take care. And thank okay. you all for listening. Listen ad free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to the all new Brett Bear podcast featuring common ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.